0: Folks, today's episode of the Cracked Podcast is brought to you by Next Level. Next Level host Chris Tallman gets guests to spill the beans, then the guest takes it to the titular Next Level, inviting someone who inspires and fascinates them onto the show, which lets you learn from the most creative people in pop culture and their favorite creative people in pop culture. They've got Andy Daly, Andy Richter, Aaron Hayes, Michaela Watkins, and so many more comedians you already like on Season 2. You can hear even more from them in six new episodes of the show All available now on Stitcher Premium. If you want to hear that, go to StitcherPremium.com slash next and use promo code CRACKED at checkout to get a one-month free trial. One month! That's so long! That's right, StitcherPremium.com slash next and use promo code CRACKED. On with the show! Hey there, folks! Welcome to another episode of the Cracked Podcast. My name is Alex Schmidt, and I'm the head of podcasting here at Cracked. I am also known as Schmitty the Clam, and I am also, also... Oh, okay, it does not feel normal to say this yet. <clears throat> I am also your host here at the Cracked Podcast. If you missed last week's episode, I I highly recommend you check it out. It's like a greatest hits. It's very uh, wonderful. And if you want a recap of it, here's the big takeaway, the top headline, the the spinning newspaper if we were in a black and white movie world. It's that Jack O'Brien has departed cracked. We miss him. We wish him the best. We are a show and a website because of him. And please trust me when I say that if this change feels odd to you right now, it feels way, way odder to me. And not just because Jack's chair is full of his farts. Like, full of them. Like, like they keep escaping like Ark of the Covenant ghosts full. Anyway, it's fine. Uh, hosting's weird. There's great news for all of us this week, because this change is kicking in gradually. We decided you guys deserve a transitional episode, and also deserve a special double episode, just because you're great. So, before he left us, Jack and I tag-teamed a pair of interviews with a pair of comedians we're huge fans of. W. Kamau Bell and Hurry Kondabalu. Kamau and Hurry are comedians, they're writers, they're actors, they're nationally-touring speakers and activists, and highest of all those art forms, they are podcasters. If you haven't heard their podcast, which is called Politically Reactive, I highly recommend you check it out. We'll be talking more about that later in the episode. Jack and I did these interviews separately because I was busy training for this job at Cracked's Himalayan Retreat. And Jack was busy booby-trapping and cursing his office so no other living soul could claim it, is I believe what he screamed uh, on the way out of the building. Anyway, that's how we built you this double episode of two great interviews. First we've got Jack along with Cracked's Daniel O'Brien talking to W. Kamau Bell, and after that I'll team up with Cracked's Katie Golden to get to know Kandabalu. Kondabalu. It's, it's loaded, it's going to be great. And I'll catch you all again at the end for that classic standard crack podcast segment that we call. Uh, we ca- okay. Uh, it's it's hard to make out exactly what Jack carved into this stone tablet of how-to's, but I believe it says Fort Noops. Doesn't it? Doesn't sound right. Anyway, we'll figure it out. We'll be back in a bit. Here's Jack Daniel and Kamau, and I'll join you later at the end.
1: We are thrilled to be joined by W. Kamau Bell, who has a bunch of project going on. (laughs) A lot of things. I I don't know which one to start with. I found out about you from Denzel Washington's The Greatest Actor of All Time, period. We actually had Kevin on our podcast a few years ago. Since then, you have an Emmy-nominated CNN show, The United Shades of America, that is coming out with its second season pretty soon, right? Any day now?
2: Yes, Sunday, April thirtieth at ten p.m. Eastern on CNN. I'm trying to get yeah. that James Earl Jones job. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you also have the second season of Politically Reactive with Harry Condabolo. <laughs> Shit, Condabolu. Uh, <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> Fuck. I, I can hear you. Like you, you, you waited too long. If you just rolled Harry into Kondibolu. it, you might be wrong, but it would
1: have been okay. Condabolu. <laughs> <laughs> Condabolu. Yeah, there it is. And then you also have a book coming out. The yeah. awkward thoughts of yeah. W. Kamau Bell.
2: Yeah, the awkward thoughts of W. Kamau Bell.
1: And then the the subtitle of that, I think I've heard you refer to it as Fiona Apple esque. It's a long subtitle.
2: Yes, yes, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, I come to the Fiona Apple school. The no title can be too long. Denzel <laughs> Washington is the greatest actor of all time. Period is too long. <laughs> and so yeah. Is this.
1: That's just the right length. So why don't why don't we talk about the book first? What is awkward about your thoughts? Why did you choose that specific part to be before the colon?
2: I think everybody has awkward thoughts, but we're taught to not share them with people. We're taught to act like we got it all under control and that we're cool all the time. I've just learned in my life that it's better to be awkward about things. Like a big thing that people are afraid to say is I have no idea what you're talking about. Like everybody sort of hears conversations all day long where they have no idea what people are talking about, but they just sort of go, yeah, yeah, I know I'm right there with you. Cause that's less awkward than saying, I have no idea what you're talking about or can you explain that to me? And I learned at some point in my life, it's better to say, can you explain that to me than to act like you know what's going on. Sometimes when things get awkward, we want to like, get into and interrupt and stop the awkwardness and sometimes it is about listening and just going oh this feels so weird i'm just gonna sit in this for a little while see what i can learn i think awkwardness is a great way to make yourself smarter and more willing to accept things you don't understand
1: that's admirable (laughs) i'm extremely gifted at agreeing with people who i have no idea what they're talking about right i think
3: i'm pretty certain that when i die it'll be because I get delivered the wrong meal at a restaurant and I'm dangerously allergic to it, but I'm too shy. To <laughs> right. like, Actually, I didn't order this. And one of your waiters has been stabbing me. I'm just going to die. <laughs> <Yeah>. smiling. <laughs> Here's that plate of uncooked shellfish you asked for. Oh, no.
1: I've got to eat it. <laughs> <laughs> I've
2: got to eat it because we have a movie to
1: do. There's not time to order another meal. <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't cut a date short if I was bleeding to death under the table. I'd yeah. just be like, yeah, yeah this is great. <laughs> no, I'm I am enjoying this. The first... Episode of Politically Reactive back, you had one of the three women who started Black Lives Matter on Patrice Khan Colors. She talked about how like dangerous her life had become. Yeah. In particular, she talked about a trip to Duke University where she was speaking and there had been threats made against her yeah. where yeah. she brought the Nation of Islam in to watch her back. Yeah, it was a cool story, but it all felt very 1960s Oakland in a, <laughs> in a terrifying way.
2: It's funny; people who lived in Oakland in 1960s kind of feel like Oakland was never better than it was then, because <laughs> like, the Black Panthers actually had their back and had their stomachs. They were feeding them lunch and protecting them from police brutality. Patrice Concolors, I mean, I don't know if she lives in Oakland, but she certainly is in the East Bay a lot. I think she's of that life. It's very natural for her to think, "I need help. I should call the Nation of Islam." <laughs> you know, and I was like, as you heard me on the. So I was like totally blown away like that's a thing you can do because I've been at plenty of colleges where I was like hey uh, where is there anybody here who's got my back <laughs> I've done all levels of college shows. I've done all college shows where you go there and you only talk to the one student who's on the committee that brought you there and you don't meet any faculty to shows where I'm introduced to the president and flanking the, of the university and flanking each side of the stage is a police officer who's <laughs> police officers looking out into the room waiting for somebody to make a move. So when you do all those shows, you go, how come I need here, but I don't need that other college? You know, <laughs> so like, you know right now there's a lot of talk about free speech and it's being centered in my hometown where I live in Brooklyn, California. And it's like, those people who are showing up to speak aren't doing it responsibly. Patrice Con is showing up responsibly and saying, like, I better bring some protection and make sure that that I'm safe and make sure that the place is safe, as opposed to these people like Ann Coulter and Mila who are just like really trying to start trouble.
1: I guess it's a sign of how busy you are and how many things you've got going on that I didn't mention the fact that you have like a, a university tour uh, called curing racism <laughs> <laughs> that that uh, you've been going on uh, in the past. Couple months. Can you talk a little bit about that?
2: Well, that's the solo show that sort of like, that got my whole career started with you know, with Totally Bias. That's the show that led to Totally Bias. It's called the W Kabal Bell Curve, Ending Racism in About an Hour. Again, no title can be too long everybody. <laughs> uh, don't let serial podcasts fool you. It can be more than one word. (laughs) In fact, it can be a paragraph. Yes, exactly. It can can be a mission statement followed by a compound sentence. It's like that show. I use a lot of multimedia and PowerPoint and slides and it's a whole thing where it's like a constantly evolving thing of racism in America. When I first wrote the show, it was in 2007 and there was like, you know, at that point there was no talk of Barack Obama in it because it was like, oh, that guy who's running for president, maybe if he's lucky he can be Hillary's vice president and then you know cut like a year later the show is like probably 70% about Barack Obama and how his run for president was changing the country and affecting the country and then cut to now like the real through line of the show is Trump just sort of keeps evolving you know I've done the show that's about that has a lot of Trump criticism I did it at at Auburn University in Auburn Alabama where Richard Spencer started a riot and I did it in front of like I would imagine some of the same students were there and you know and I I was also being critical of things but I got a standing ovation so I feel like it's all about how you put the message out there even if I'm critical of somebody that you don't think I should be critical of or if you don't agree with me, I'm actually trying to bring us together, you know. I'm not trying to divide us and separate us and I'm certainly not trying to start trouble. I'm trying to like start thoughts. <laughs> like I'm trying to I'm trying to get trying to get laughs and start some thinking, you know. Uh, yeah, I've been doing that for several years. In addition to that, and then still trying to find time after the show comes out, I'm going out on a stand-up tour. So <laughs> <laughs> I got two kids, don't feed themselves. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, just put them in a room with a bowl full of food. I've got an 11-month-old, I know the drill. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so so let's talk about the United Shades of America, because it's a really cool show. You do sit down, I think it's in the first episode of the second season, and sit down with Richard Spencer,
2: right? Yeah, we have an interview. The first episode is about immigrants and refugees. Yeah. And uh, mostly it's about talking to people who are immigrants and refugees, talking about how they ended up in America, why they came to America. Some it's because they chose here, because they were inspired by the American dream. And some people had, ran here from their home countries where they had no choice but to get out. And America traditionally has been a place that's like, give us your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to be free. It says, one that big giant lady in New York City and so America has always been a country people came to and it's sort of strange because right now we're sort of the a lot of the leadership of this country saying that's not the way anymore so we let those people tell their stories but also we talked to Richard Spencer because you know as much as people want to say why are you giving him a platform I think many people still don't know what his ideas are and haven't really heard him speak before. I think it's important because his ideas, he's credited with coming up with the phrase the alt-right, and those ideas are in the White House now. You know, So you know, we all like to think everybody is as woke as we are, but some people are hashtag asleep. <laughs> so they're, all, they're not all as hashtag woke as you think they are.
3: Now am I going to end up liking Richard Spencer after this episode because I am not interested in having my... <laughs> points of view changed <laughs> there are yeah, a lot so more like, laughs in
1: the, in the conversation than I would have expected between the two of you but you are in no danger of liking him Daniel oh. you should be fine
2: I think it ends with him saying that something I said sounded horrifying. So it ends with me going, oh, I horrified you. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) We shake hands and leave on polite terms, but it doesn't mean that, you know, it doesn't mean I'm like, man, that guy made a lot of good points. And the episode ends in a very definitive way. It's not like, you know, Richard Spencer says America should be white. These immigrants and refugees say America should be for all people. I don't know what to decide. Anyway, (laughs) on to the next city.
1: (laughs) Hey. Everybody has their own opinion, and there's room in this great country for all of them. That's what you're saying, right? No. <laughs> yeah,
2: I'm a, uh, I'm a journalist. I don't want to pick a side. Luckily, I'm a comedian. <laughs> yeah, I pick
1: yeah, a <laughs> yeah, it almost seems like he's doing a bit. That's the impression that I get of him. And I mean, it's obviously a dangerous bit, but like, it's almost like he doesn't take himself seriously, and that's kind of what's somewhat disarming about him. He was laughing at his own ideas when he was talking to you.
2: No, I think he knows how to be in front of people, which is something that I learned from that conference. Most of those people in the alt-right don't know how to be in front of people. They don't know how to be on camera. They don't know how to – like one guy wouldn't even look me in the eye when he was talking to me. And it's like, wait, if your whiteness is so superior to mine, why can't you even look my blackness in the eye? A lot of them don't know how to be around people. They seem really uncomfortable in their own skin, despite how awesome they think their white skin is. So Richard Spencer knows how to be a little bit charming and knows how to smile, which is why he sort of gets pushed to the fore as the leader, I think. That's how that works. Sure. You know, that's why Malcolm X got pushed to the fore. He was funnier than everybody else. So right. you know, the, he was a better public speaker. The message is when you listen to them, these are horrifying messages, and again, those messages end up in the White House. Every time we talk about the idea of building the wall, you know, that's coming from the alt-right. Or we talk about the Muslim ban. That's Those are alt-right ideas. They want immigration to only happen from European countries. So when you ban immigration from, what it was, seven countries initially, that's the beginning of, like only having immigration from European countries. It's a gradual process, but I think if you sort of want to be the kind of person who goes, well, once they build that wall and ban those people from those seven countries, then they won't do anything else crazy. It's like you have to realize well, there's a long-term plan here, and if you let them get away with these things, it's going to get progressively worse. Yeah,
1: it's like, yeah, just let them have Poland. Then he'll be cool after that. That always works out well. <laughs>
2: What's the big deal?
1: We I, we have a theory on our team that Richard Spencer staged the punching video because there's like photographs from earlier that day where he is being punched by what appears to be the same person in very similar circumstances, but they had photographs. And then later on, he had CNN cameras around him. And yes. it happened again. It's like weird how convenient that was and we we just have a theory that when you look at those guys and their whole attitude they fetishize making themselves victims they feel robbed of not being able to be the victims of anything Mm -hmm. that kind of makes a lot of sense to me i i I think they're very manipulative of how they frame themselves
2: it's the people in the alt-right who manipulated people into believing that manipulated a guy into believing that there was a pizza restaurant in dc yeah, I had like some sort of underground child uh, molestation ring.
1: You're saying you don't buy that? You're you're not a PizzaGate subscriber? <laughs> no, I don't get
2: I don't get PizzaGate monthly. I don't subscribe to the PizzaGate. Uh, they manipulate their own followers into believing like there was that whole thing with the I forget what it's called. They were saying that the Clintons are drinking blood and doing things with semen, and it's like, can't you just say you don't agree with their policies? Like,
1: must <laughs> <laughs> go you know, all the way there. You gotta get Satan involved. I mean, come on. <laughs> yeah, he, gotta, yeah, when there's get, an opportunity, it's so funny. But aren't you? But it was like, aren't you all atheists?
2: What is happening? I don't understand.
1: <laughs> yeah, that was amazing. Ben Carson talked about that in his RNC speech. He like yeah. got up and talked about how Hillary Clinton had like dedicated a book or something to one of her professors, and that professor like worshipped Satan. It was like some really crazy fringe shit, but. Yeah, that's one. Even
2: the right is like Ben Carson, less of you is better. Like, <laughs> dude. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I think I heard you describe United Shades as Sesame Street for adult sensibilities. Like, you really come at these issues from a okay, let's let's pretend you don't know anything and like break it down for you. The clips that I saw online from the refugees versus immigrants told me a bunch of things that I probably would have pretended to know, but that I didn't actually know.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I think that on some level, we're just trying to make your conversations at cocktail parties and at coffee shops better. (laughs) A little bit
1: more informed.
2: (laughs) Yeah, a little bit more informed. Subject of refugees come up. You can't say, did you know that they found 50% of the Silicon Valley (laughs) startup businesses? You can sort of have these facts available to you. And also, as much as this stuff is sort of basic and we, we sort of do get to some really basic facts of these situations, it's a good reminder, even to people who know them, to go, oh yeah, that's right. Like Maybe you're not pushing these facts enough in your life to people. And it also, even if you know everything we're talking about, people in your life don't know, and this gives you a way to so I know you get bored when I explain this stuff, but watch this goofy black guy talk about it.
1: Right. <laughs> we might as well say the thing you guys say about immigrants is that the the complaint that they take our jobs is insane because you like have a just a one screen about all the companies that were founded by immigrants and it's like google uber all the biggest job instagram. creators uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, instagram yeah, yeah just yeah. all of the companies that have created the most jobs in the past you know decade
2: Everything you're doing to make America great again was invented by an immigrant. (laughs) It's wholly ridiculous. And like the fact that it's like, you know, when you put the job numbers that they create three million jobs, it makes sense when you think about it. This is what I think is sort of the strength of the show when you sort of go, oh, yeah, of course that's how it works. If you fight to come from another country, whether you're an immigrant or a refugee, if you get to America... And you hear that it's the land of opportunity you're going to bust your ass to make opportunity you're not going to go well i'm here could you hand me the opportunity because you know that they probably don't have a job for you they've already got people here so you're like i better open a store i better invent a new technology or i better do the jobs that these other americans don't want to do like you're those people are the hardest working people because they fought the hardest to get here those of us who sort of just fell out of our mom's womb a lot of time, we're the lazy ones. Like, we're like, I'm an American. I want more. Wow. Supersize my order. Wah.
1: <laughs> that is such a good impression of
3: me. That was exactly, those were my, my first words in order. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: supersize my happy meal. <laughs> what
3: are you talking about?
1: I do think that, I don't know whether it's conscious or not, a lot of the conservative views and white supremacist views are arguing for a tainted talent pool where like they have an advantage. Like what they want to conserve is an inferior way of life where it's like not an absolute meritocracy, but where they can continue to be born on third and think they hit a triple. The The more that you let immigrants into create great companies and do amazing things for the country, the less of an unfair advantage they get. There's a lot of kind of ugly ways to phrase what they're actually fighting for that obviously they probably haven't put those positions in those exact words, but it it does make a sort of sense.
2: Well, I think the one thing that Richard Spencer hits on that I've advocated for when I do my solo shows, I do think that he says white people need to basically says they need to embrace their whiteness and embrace what whiteness is and what it does. And I'm like, yeah, that's true. But the problem is he only means white people who agree with him. And I've always said if the quote-unquote good white people, the quote-unquote hashtag woke white people, embrace their whiteness then they will take it upon themselves to confront people like Richard Spencer directly instead of sort of just letting him be out in the world in the street. But, you know, if anything, the white guy who punched Richard Spencer didn't know Richard Spencer, we just wanted to punch him in the head. If anything, that guy was going, you're making white guys look bad. You know, <laughs> right. like, you know like in the same way that like black people regularly are like, Hey, stop talking, Stacey Dash. You're making black people look bad. We'll let their white people sort of just walk around like free range white people sort of do whatever they want to do. And I think that if, Again, the quote-unquote good white people, the quote-unquote woke white people actually felt like Richard Spencer's version of whiteness was making them look bad, then they would be more empowered to stand up to it. The way that black people in the 60s started to go, say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud, is a way to stand up to the fact that black was regarded as not something to be proud of. So, you know. Somebody needs to write the positive white pride song. I, I, I can't do it. It's obviously a conflict <laughs> of interest. But I, I'm suggesting that to you all.
1: That would be very tricky, but it uh, uh, sounds like a, wor- a worthwhile pursuit. No, you wasn't
3: easy to write gin and
2: juice either, but souped <laughs> off, so. <laughs>
3: Uh Yeah, you mentioned the good white people. Who are the good white people? Would you please list them? <laughs> Uh, okay, my
2: <laughs> wife is a good white person. <laughs> my uh, my friend Martha Reinberg is a good white person. My friend Jason Smith. My friend Jeremy Townsend is like 75% of a good white person, but he lives in Florida, <laughs> so that sort of impacts sometimes. sometimes. Uh, the, the white women. there's a book called Rad American Women, written by two good white women. Uh, let's see, who's a famous good white person? We find a fa- You know, the example is someone like Matt Damon. For a long time, we wanted to put in good white guy status, and then... Every now and again, he does things and you're like, yuh oh, yikes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> really? The Great Wall? A white guy's the center of the movie about the Great Wall of China?
1: Okay. You were so All close, right. Matt Damon. <laughs> you were almost yeah, yeah, there, yeah. Matt Damon.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, great. A movie about the Great Wall of China starring a white guy. Oh, no. It's like being a good white person for me is like a man who sort of annoys himself a feminist. You have to let somebody else do it. You can't give that title to yourself.
3: Sure. <laughs>
1: Just to hit some of the highlights from season one for any of our audience who hasn't seen season one of United Shades, you met with KKK leaders. You met with like a grand wizard in the dark. There's like yeah. a very shady like meeting where he yeah. like flicked his lights on a couple times. And can you talk a little bit about what you found meeting face to face with and being at a uh, cross lighting ceremony, I guess is what they call it, instead of cross burning?
2: it was interesting because we got there and they really right off the bat one of them was like the guy who was in blue that I called in the episode affectionately Clanny Smurf he was very like wanted to be very aggressive and it was right in the middle of Ferguson was in the news he was really wanted to talk about Ferguson and how Ferguson and black people Ferguson and you know can't police and it wasn't really able to have a conversation, so we had to stop tape for a second and sort of let it get it out of the system. And then we sat down and talked about it, and it was very clear that it was we sat down and sort of talked, sort of let that moment pass. Really, I just wanted like, to think, here's an opportunity for you to tell me and therefore America what you want and what you're thinking. Some people were like, why would you give him a platform? But from the person who said that, people were like, again, I had no idea that people thought this way. But then at some point, like one of the guys, you could tell that nobody had really asked him about how to wrap across. He never had a chance to talk about sort of the, the nerd side of being a Klansman. And so he was really <laughs> excited to have that opportunity to like, oh, this is how we re- we get the wood from here, and we wrap it with burlap sacks, and we use kerosene, and we don't use wood from Home Depot. Like It was like a PBS show, This Old Klansman. <laughs> And so there was just this thing where, like these are humans back here. They're twisted by something. They've allowed themselves to put hate in their heart about about something that doesn't make any sense. But ultimately, these are people. If I lived in their communities and I saw those guys regularly, I think over time they'd start to be like, yeah, you know, you know, they might be like, I don't hate you, black guy. And then over time, I'd be like, what? A, you know, I'd introduce them one by one to every other black person. They're like, you're right. I'm crazy.
4: <laughs> uh,
2: <laughs> But I think that like, it's like a really thing, but we have to remember that this stuff has to happen over time. It's not going to happen overnight. It's not going to happen in one one conversation. Like, you know, we see coal miners on TV about like, you know, we want our coal mines back. And those of us who don't live in those communities go, coal is the dying industry. You're not going to get them back. But when you go talk to them directly, and this is what happened this season, you find out the only reason they want their coal jobs back is because they know those are the only jobs in the area. There's no other industries in the area. If another industry moved into the area and paid as well as coal did, they would take those jobs, just that they know there's no jobs around, and in that mountain, there is coal. I know it's there, because I used to get it out of there. And that's the only way I could know if to feed my family. So it's like, the thing I've learned is if we sort of can get past the rhetoric and get past the yelling, if we done and talk, we'll find out, yeah, we all want
1: better jobs.
2: Like, we, you know, <laughs> everybody <laughs> I know feels like their job should pay them more money. You know, we can all relate to that.
1: Yeah, what are some other things you hit this year?
2: The second episode, we go to Chicago uh, and talk to black people on the south side and west side of Chicago about gang violence. And we talk to actual gang members who are currently in the life Trump, you know, had sort of called out Chicago as being a city of carnage, and it was like I was from Chicago. I'm like, uh, have you been to the <laughs> North Side? Have you been to Wrigley Field? <laughs> I would call it. A, the wouldn't call that an area of carnage. Sometimes the Cubs lose pretty badly, but it's not carnage. An <laughs> episode we actually got invited to Standing Rock. We were at Standing Rock when it was still in its full bloom. And we spent some time on on reservations in North Dakota and South Dakota and Pine Ridge. Then we also did an episode where we talked to Muslims and Arabs who live outside of Hamtramck and live outside of Detroit, Michigan. Where it is a heavily Muslim and Arab population. And the crazy thing was we were there like a week after Trump won the election. Oh, wow. So you, know, so you got to hear people sort of who were really thinking about what does this mean in the grand scheme of things. And also on top of that, we got to meet a, like I think he was an imam from maybe Yemen, I think. And he was in full you know, religious garb. And we asked him what he voted for. And he admitted he voted for Trump. What? And so, you know, exactly. <laughs> so, <laughs> now, and so in the middle of this thing where you go, there's no way anybody, it's like, no, I voted for Trump. And I asked him why, and he said ISIS. It's like, you know, again, we talk about the single issue voters. Some people vote for one reason. And, and it's funny because it's like, I'm pretty sure Hillary was, yeah. <laughs> like
1: Hillary Hillary was going to be a hawk, man. She was coming <laughs> yeah, yeah. for fucking ISIS. Don't worry about that. <laughs> Yeah, he wasn't
2: dropping pantsuits. Yeah. So but it's just the perception, it's just the perception of like, you know, that he's male strengths, even though Trump has clearly never been in a fight in his life, it's the perception. And so I feel like, you know, that was, and then we got to do, we got to go to Puerto Rico for the last episode of the season, which was pretty interesting. We did a whole episode about gun control, about whether or not I should buy a gun to protect my family. So I'm pretty excited that those episodes hitting the world.
1: Where'd you come down on that? Because I, I ask myself that all the time. I'm personally uh, yeah. a coward. I'm worried that I'll like end up like shooting my foot off or something if I if I ever buy a gun. Where'd you land? In the
2: TV show, I do buy a gun to show the process. How you buy a gun? In the state of California, every state is different about how you buy guns. California is one of the more complicated states, so we showed the process. That's the only episode where I won't reveal the ending because it's kind of a, it's, I, I don't want to reveal the cliffhanger ending. It's the only okay. episode that actually has like an arc. <laughs> it's, like, it's the one that's like dun dun dun, dun, dun ends It's like an episode of like uh, House of Cards or Breaking Bad.
3: I think Jack's asking because time is a factor here. His house gets broken into every single day. <laughs> and I just cower in the corner. <laughs>
2: the thing that I learned is that if you get a gun, it's not enough to buy a gun, you have to really spend time and money training how to use a gun. Because yeah. you know, most of the gun people I talk to is like, there's no point in having a gun in your house you don't know how to use. Because you're not going to suddenly be imbued with the powers of how to shoot a gun straight and solidly if you've never touched it before. If you just put it in your drawer to wait, for, and, you know, wait for the bad guys to come in. The thing I learned is like, responsible gun ownership is not just about how you buy the gun. It's about training to use the gun. And so that's the that would be really. So I say, if you buy a gun, don't just buy it and go. Got a gun? Good. I'm um, all good now. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: I've seen the fourth Rambo movie, so I think I'm fine. Okay, there you go. Think, yeah, if you've yeah.
2: seen John Wick or Rambo, you got it. You got it. <laughs> yeah, yeah
1: I, I've got this.
2: Get two guns, put one in each hand, you know, spin in a circle. <laughs> to, right.
1: Turn them sideways, make it look cool.
2: Yeah, it yeah, it's all about looking cool as you shoot. That's really the key. Yeah.
3: Just going to a gun store and being like, I want to know, do I need this gun to look cool in front of my family? I'm not really into protection, but like, what's going to make me look the coolest? (laughs) I don't think my baby respects me right now.
2: Uh, You know, the funny thing is, they do have people who walk in and say that stuff. And if it's a good gun store, they will sort of slowly talk you down. The bad gun stores are like, this one looks really cool. you know. And I think that the one we went to, this guy John, is really... Good. He, like he, you know, we don't agree on all the issues, but he's really good about talking about his side of the issue, which is really what the show is about. I think people will be really sort of interested in hearing somebody who clearly is an advocate for gun ownership, but is talking from a sober, sort of
1: thoughtful side. We talked to some good store owners and some bad store owners and for our personal experience articles and the horror stories they have for like reasons people came in looking for guns and like wanting to buy assault rifles were pretty scary. The good store owners said they would figure out at the last second that they thought that aliens were following them and like have to have to come up with some excuse to blow the sale up. What, what was Standing Rock like when you guys were up there? We sent one of our reporters up there. Our only reporter, if I'm being honest.
2: One of our one reporter. <laughs> yeah. uh, we have ones of reporters. It was really intense. Most times in America, I feel very much like a black person, but at Standing Rock, I just felt like not a native person. So it was really right. like a... And, you know, every person in this country, but I feel like it's definitely true of black people, like the claim they have some Native American heritage in there somewhere. For some reason, usually it's Cherokee, even though that's not possible that we're all Cherokee. Uh, so it's just funny to be there and feel like I am not going to click because my mom's always like my grandmother was was 100% Native. And suddenly in that situation, I'm like, I'm not going to bring that up. Uh, you know, because it's a. So they'll get you like I don't care that your grandmother is unless you're gonna help us. Like <laughs> it's a group that people ask us all the time to sort of cover the show. And so last season we did a show in Alaska, which is people don't think of that as being Native Americans, but it is. But this season we really went to like Standing Rock. It was an opportunity to go to like a major national news story. It was way into talking about the issue that was really organic. So yeah, I was really honored to be there and. The thing I we went there before the winter broke, and they were like, "We're going to stay through the winter." And I was, you know, looking at tents and teepees. You're like, "How are you going to do that?" And many of them did.
1: Yeah, that's pretty intense. We uh, kind of got involved with the tech scene up there. There were like a bunch of tech people who realized that government planes were like hacking them and like shutting down their phones and stuff because they wanted to fuck with them i guess it was a it was a whole scene it seemed pretty intense
2: people act like Sandy rock was about them trying to get their land rights back that was a part of it but the bigger part of it was like they were trying to protect the water and that's just the water for them but they're like i don't know if you understand this everybody not us water's all touching each other like (laughs) like the rivers all end up in the same place so we're trying to protect all of your water not just our water in this area I did it for a lot of people about how, they, you know, they felt like there was things that the, that the government was doing to to screw with them. So it was just a pretty intense scene that I was happy to be able to be at for a little
3: bit. You were saying you were working on season two during the election. So did you make any sharp turns working on the show immediately after Trump was elected, like pump the brakes on any one episode or like, oh, crap, the, the show's about this now. We have to. This is the most <laughs> pressing thing. So, you know,
2: the climate for Muslims and Arabs in this country was already not good. So we were already going to ask them the questions. The questions just felt more relevant. We taped Chicago before Trump won, but the thing is, since it takes so long to edit, by the time he won, we were able to sort of, like, frame the show in his victory. Because suddenly, he had another out a tweet about, about Dwayne Wade's cousin being killed and sort of connected to why black people were going to vote for him for, on Election Day. And so... <sighs> He hadn't been president; we would have brought it up, but because he was president, we like we need to bring that up. A lot of he been up framing the season. It's like we were already sort of covering a fire that was ablaze, and he just poured gasoline on it. It gave us more fuel to, like, really, like, okay, we really got to make sure this works and this is good, and that we're doing the right thing.
1: What did you figure out about Chicago? Did you solve the whole situation there? Everything's good now.
2: Well, I mean, yes. I was, <laughs> you haven't heard? So the funny thing about Chicago, is the gang members we talked to have solved the situation. They just need the resources to make it possible. When you talk to people in Chicago on the south and the west side, whether it's gang members or parents or even some kids, they're like, the reason why there's a gang problem here is because people have no hope. Because if you look on the south side of Chicago, there are very few local businesses. There are very few companies. There are very few grocery stores. So there's very few jobs. And then also Mayor Emanuel has closed a lot of schools in the south and west side. The schools have gotten fewer and farther between, so it's harder for kids to get to school. And the schools don't have enough funds. They're not getting a good education. So they're like, we need jobs and better schools. They go, you know, neighborhoods that have good jobs and good schools don't have high crime. The thing is, it's, like, it's very easy for you to figure out how to fill this up. If you've made it friendly on businesses to invest in those neighborhoods and you worked hard to change the way those neighborhoods were police. those neighborhoods would bounce back quickly. But the problem is that, you know, the powers that be don't want to do that. So it was really interesting to me. They, those guys have the solution, and the men and women who we talk to—I just talked to a lot of male gang members—they have the solution. Just the city's not listening to them, and so when President Trump says, "If Chicago doesn't clean up his act, we're going to send the federal government in there," it's like, "Hey, man, send them some checks." Like, you know, right. you know and I don't mean the people—I mean, like, build one of those shiny buildings there. You know, like, you know, like if you you really cared, that's what you would do. But he's talking about sending in like an invading army, which is not what Chicago needs.
1: Yeah, the whole history of redlining and unofficial segregation that has gone on is, is something we've covered and that, in the same way that a lot of white people were surprised by the results of the election, a lot of white people are just finding out about the history of redlining and stuff like that.
2: He well, was talking about it forever. I mean, I talked on my solo show about the fact that like, all the studies show that white people on average hold more wealth than black and brown families. People people go, that's because black people don't know how to save their money and blah, blah, blah. It's like, no, it's because of real estate. Black people and brown people were not allowed to get, they couldn't get bank loans by real estate. If they did save their pennies to buy real estate, they had to buy it in their neighborhoods where that property values were artificially low. These are very clear things you can see if you pay attention to the facts. But people don't want to do that. It's easy to get caught up in these narratives that prove that I'm better than you and you're not as good as me and my problems are your fault. So you know, like I'm just like you know, just like well, what are the root causes of these things?
1: Do you guys talk at all about class? Because that's something we keep coming back to is that the liberal media or what or what I guess Trump followers would call like the liberal media tend to ignore the idea that there are class divisions in our culture between lower class white people and upper class white people. And like, I think lower class white people felt like they were being ignored for a long time. Did you guys kind of cover that at all?
3: I
2: mean, we did an episode in Appalachia and we talked about the fact that when people think about poverty in this country, they think about black people, people in Appalachia are some of the poorest people in this country but we don't yeah. think about them because we like to associate poverty with black people and so and you know we also pitched this season if we get the next season we'll try to do it and it's about wealthy people like what is it like to actually live as a wealthy person in this country the problem is wealthy people don't usually talk about that <laughs>
1: no they do not yeah yeah there's this theory of class in America that says that there's five classes and each class is only aware of the class immediately below them and immediately above them. So, like, people who are the second lowest class don't even know that, like, there are the extremely wealthy and extremely, extremely wealthy, that there are people who, like, go to prep schools and, like, marry each other's families and, you know.
2: Like, <laughs> <laughs> oh, good. You're my fourth cousin. This is yeah, yeah, money. exactly.
1: Yeah, you got to protect your money. You got to protect the family's yeah.
2: money. No, I mean, we so we were trying to start to reach out to people. We had a problem finding rich people to talk to. And hopefully, if the season goes well, the more people who like the show, the more people are willing to do the show. The more attention the show gets, the, the more people are able to talk. to. If, if the season goes well, then we'll be able to do our episode about extreme wealth because I just feel like that's something everybody in the country is kind of aspiring to because you kind of have to. <laughs> you have to right. you, if you just focus on survival, it's not going to work. You got to focus on, like, how do I get out of here?
1: Yeah, there's like these little brief snippets that you can catch of extreme wealth. Like I think there's a documentary about a guy, I think one of the Rockefellers made about their father because their father suffered from schizophrenia or some mental disorder. It's something polar bears, but you get this glimpse of their culture and like what it's like to be a Rockefeller and it's really crazy it's like they find it gauche to like actually spend your money because that's like something that the nouveau riche do and like all all these kind of counterintuitive things that only the like very very wealthy like the people I didn't even know about like these values that they hold it's really
3: strange
2: yeah, and I mean, you know, there's a documentary about the the children of wealthy people. I can't remember what it's called, but it's a very interesting documentary about like how that sort of skews your perception. Just because if you're certainly if you're born into wealth and you don't know, there's just no other way. It skews your whole perception of the world. The Walton family, the like the billionaire Waltons. One of their like grandkids, their dad didn't want to give them any money, so they're like, you know, like living like very modestly, and you just and having to sort of deal the fact that I'm like, close to super wealth, but I'm not allowed to have it. <laughs> you know, like, so, like, You know. Which I think that's probably worse than being poor. <laughs> it's like that, like, you know, that, like I, wealth is all around me, but I live in a studio apartment. You know, so yeah, I feel like you know when they did those shows about hoarders, when hoarders was a big show on Annie. I mean, on some level, isn't a billionaire just a, kind of you know, like, isn't just a different kind of hoarder?
1: Warren Buffett. There's that uh, new documentary, Becoming Warren Buffett, where he you you follow him on a day that he's going into work and he like stops at McDonald's and because like his stocks were down the day before he only gets like the cheapest sandwich on the McDonald's breakfast menu. This guy's like a multi-billionaire. He's like one of the richest people in in the world.
2: People work at McDonald's are like, would you stop coming here, please?
1: <laughs> you're, <Yeah. laughs> you're just making us feel bad.
2: You're making us feel bad. Every, <laughs> I can't afford to get two Big Macs a day. Shut the hell up. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, the employees are stealing Big Macs to take home so they can, like, not die.
1: Exactly. One last thing I wanted to run by you. I ran it by Kevin. And so Denzel Washington, we've noticed something about his movie posters. On every movie poster, he looks off to the side of the movie poster. He doesn't, like, make eye contact with Mm -hmm. the viewer. Will Smith, on the other hand, every movie poster, he's looking directly at the viewer Tom Cruise only shows one side of his face, but Denzel like yeah, has yeah. this like very particular like look that he does on movie posters, and I was wondering if you had any theories on why that would be, other than that he knows that his look is so intense that it would just get people spontaneously yeah. pregnant <laughs> if. He- yeah directed it at them well seen
2: the movie glory where he's getting whipped and he looks directly like into camera and the glory tear goes down who can deal yeah. with that coming off the poster <laughs> right. yeah, exactly it would cause
1: it would cause traffic accidents <laughs> yeah
2: like i mean we we talk about the show like I, he's apparently a great dad his kid's love him. but can you imagine that dad looking at you in the face like oh, oh my you, you didn't you do your homework oh you, you you oh you were late today you know what <laughs> Denzel's a little like Superman. Like he knows, like if I unleashed all my power, humanity couldn't take it. <laughs> we could
1: <take> <laughs> I think that's right. I think that's right. <laughs> I loved your Oscar recap episode so much. Just, just first of all, because it was good to have you two back together. But I think Kevin was telling you that Denzel was the one who was like telling Jimmy kimmel to stop telling jokes and to let barry jenkins talk and yeah yeah he was like taking charge of the situation and you were like oh my god i didn't know i could love him more (laughs) (laughs) that's the
2: thing that happens like you know he's he really feels like he's in a phase of his career where he's really just you know it's like this thing like he knows he's in the it's a final act that will go for a while but you know he's not 35 anymore it's like this is the final act and it feels like he's taking charge of his career like even by doing fences this is his way of going i'm actively going to do something to give something back to the business and then sometimes i'm actually going to do something to make this award show better shut up yeah
1: yeah exactly (laughs) he's like merging with all his like coolest all his characters feels like yeah (laughs) awesome well thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us i really appreciate it thanks
2: i'm happy to do it i appreciate it
1: all right good luck
2: Thanks. 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 Bye.
0: Today's episode of the Cracked Podcast is brought to you by Casper. Casper is an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price with supportive memory foams that create an award-winning sleep surface with just the right sink and just the right bounce. And I can tell you, once you become a podcast host, it turns out the Casper people seek you out and put you on their mattress. I've slept on it. It's delightful. I'm very well rested from it. And who knew it could be that great? Try Casper for 100 nights risk-free in your own home. If you don't love it, they'll pick it up and refund you everything, even if you're not a fancy-schmancy podcast host like myself. Casper understands the importance of truly sleeping on a mattress before you commit, especially considering you're going to spend a third of your life on it. Or maybe marginally less if you don't get enough sleep. Work on that. Free shipping and returns to the U.S. and Canada. There's also over 20,000 reviews and an average of 4.8 stars for Casper mattresses, which is why it's quickly becoming the internet's favorite mattress. And you can get $50 toward any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com cracked and using offer code cracked. Terms and conditions apply, but hey, we got you that hookup. We're also brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Are you hiring? Do you know where to post your job to find the best candidates? Finding great talent can be tough. When I was hired on it Cracked, they chanted my name three times into a mirror and I suddenly appeared, but usually people need to be found the old-fashioned way. And the old-fashioned way stinks. Do the new-fashioned way with ZipRecruiter. You can post your job to 100-plus job sites with just one click, then their powerful technology efficiently matches the right people to your job better than anyone else. That's why ZipRecruiter is different. Unlike other job sites, they don't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them, and over 80% of jobs posted on ZipRecruiter get a qualified candidate in just 24 hours, which is fast, kids! Also, no juggling emails or calls to your office. Simply screen, rate, and manage candidates all in one place with ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use dashboard. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by businesses of all sizes to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. And right now, my listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash cracked. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash cracked. One more time, to try it for free, go to ZipRecruiter.com slash cracked. On with the show. We are joined by Hurry Kandabolu, who is the host of Politically Reactive and a writer and stand up comedian, and so many other things. Thank you for joining us, Hurry.
5: Hey, man, it's great to be here. Thank you.
0: Yeah. And we're also joined by Katie Golden of Cracked and so many other things, too. Hey. I think everybody's up to everything <laughs> all of the time. It's just one way I introduce people because I'm very fun. Hurry, I want to talk about. Politically reactive first, because it's such a great show, and I think it's also particularly a great show for life right now, because so many of the people you and W. Kamau Bell talk to are people who are up to things, are people who are actively doing things about the world. Is that something that you guys kind of sought out from the beginning or something you found as you were going along, or or what sort of led to that approach to the show?
5: Sure. I mean, I think... Kamau and I are more activist types than, like, wonky political types. So I think our natural inclination generally uh, is to the people who do the work, you know, because a lot of our friends actually do the work, you know, they they spend their lives trying to fight for justice. And, you know, this election, we, we launched the first season of our podcast during the last election. And so we would kind of had to be a little wonkier. We had some cool guests on talking about gerrymandering and things we didn 't know that much about, and so we try to strike a balance between like talking about issues like that, which you know are important that we need to know about like when we say the system is rigged, what does that mean? What is the electoral college? How was that created like questions that like um you know we, you know we want answers to, but we don't get answers normally. So our job is to make that accessible to people, to make it fun and interesting enough to hold people's attention 45 minutes to an hour, and then we have the people on who we think you know do the work, either like Amy Goodman, for example, or you know, we've had a ton of activists on. We've had Patrice Colors of Black Lives Matter on. Like we, there's so many people who do such incredible stuff, and plus we have journalists on because part of the story is how the media covers it how the mainstream media covers it. So we've had Jake Tapper on and Rachel Maddow. So we try to f- strike a balance in terms of the various ways we cover these topics. It's not to say that it's going to be an even conservative, like progressive split, because it's not. It's going to be, it's very much a show that is to the left, but I think that's okay. I think this isn't meant to be objective or an attempt at objective news. It's, you know it's it's getting deeper into stories we care about
0: for sure yeah well especially i feel like podcasting is great for that and also you mentioned you guys started the show before the election and uh, i believe the election happened in the middle of your first season that's right
5: yeah it happened towards the very end because i mean i think our anticipation was we do this election podcast hillary wins and we wrap it up And (laughs) (laughs) like that was kind of what we assumed would happen and it's not to say that there wasn't more to talk about. Like even during the months leading up to the election, we were talking about stuff that wasn't necessarily directly election related, but kind of is. You know, like it's not like talking about this state is doing this or that state and these poll numbers, but it was more like, Hey, like, you know, what's happening in, in Flint you know it, that's an issue that's bigger than just this. What, what's happening with with uh, the No Dapple movement that continues on after this and is crucial, and the president does affect how that's going to be perceived. So there, there's elements of that, but once you know she lost and 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 he won, it was like ah yeah. oh, man, <laughs> there's <is> so much <laughs> more to talk about. You know it, it becomes different. It becomes like instead of uh, it being about. You know, how do we build the future we want It ends up being how do we get all this water out of the sinking ship? It's a very <laughs> different it's a very different game now
6: yeah how how do you deal with Trump fatigue because I have a hard time listening to political podcasts because I just get so dejected. I actually really love your podcast because even though y- it's not overly optimistic. It doesn't leave me feeling completely empty and drained. So, like, how do you strike that balance between, like, guys, this is this is serious, we're kind of doomed, but also, like, you know, don't be yeah. too sad.
5: Well, I'll preface it by saying, in case people don't know, we're stand-up comedians, and so uh, <laughs> we go in... When we go into the shows, certainly, we approach it the way we approach any topic that's really difficult, right? Like, we try to find some way to bring levity to really difficult things. That's what Kamau and I do in our stand-up. We try to break down issues in a way that people will find funny and understand in order to make funny. And so I think that's the approach we take into going into this. You know, The only difference is that we're, we're digging deeper into the weeds at this point. It isn't just... You know, stand-up is restrictive because you only get so much time to set up and go for a punchline, and you only have so much room to move when you're performing in front of a live audience. With podcasting, we can use the same approaches, but also find fun and interesting ways to bring up information. Also, yeah. you know, again, this, isn't, this is about Trump, but it's not about Trump, right? Like, these issues, the cracks were there. Some of these things aren't the cracks he's, like, made. The cracks were there, and he's exploiting them. And so those cracks have always been there. So, I mean, as much as we're, you know, we're, like I was saying, we're talking about getting water out of a sinking ship. The other part is, like, how do we patch up the holes? And those holes have been there before him. And so I think that's part of what this is, too. Like, let's see this as, you know, you know we'll see this as every generation has that time period that is difficult. This is our difficult time period. This happens in the history of the world. This happens in the history of empires. Okay, so what next? We're going to get through this, but what is it going to look like when we get through it?
0: That is just so gratifying to hear from anybody. We're going to get through this. It's going (laughs) to be okay. Um,
5: (laughs) I've been saying this sometimes, which isn't maybe the most optimistic thing but it's still I kind of mean it like Rome wasn't destroyed in a day
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's and it's also I feel like many of us are asking like how can I save Rome by just tweeting about Cove (laughs) <laughs> can I just do that? And is that fine? Oh, uh, yeah. It is It is very nice to hear that no, you do need to do these other things, <laughs> but these other things can probably do it or can probably help a lot of people right away and in the future.
6: You mean s- me staying up late last night doing Cobb Feife jokes wasn't helping? <laughs> <laughs> Can't we have fun? We need to have some
5: fun. Yeah.
0: <laughs> For those of you listening in the future, this is the morning after the Cove tweet, which I'm sure has already been put in your history books and established on a coin or something. You know about it. But, but like right uh,
6: now, right now yeah. it's still fresh.
4: <laughs>
5: right. Still fresh it's new comedy. to us. Oh my God. <laughs>
6: <laughs>
5: there are so many things that have to be written about in history now that are very upsetting and are kind of unbelievable, it's like you read history, and then all of a sudden there's this chapter in the future that makes no sense whatsoever. (laughs) (laughs) And, And hopefully goes back to some semblance of, like, this is how a system works, but, like, it goes from... George Washington, World War II, Clinton, the weird impeachment stuff, into a man saying that he grabs women by their genitalia. Like, that comes (laughs) out of nowhere. And it's not to say there haven't been previous presidents who have grabbed women by the genitalia or said they were going to grab women by the genitalia, but this man says it publicly, shamelessly, because uh,
6: he's an idiot. <laughs> it does feel like nonlinear. Like, it's not something that would surprise me necessarily. It just, it feels like, aren't we moving generally forward as a society? And then this feels like a huge <laughs> step back. Like something not even, I don't even think you could get away with this in the 50s.
0: Yeah, (laughs) it was a weird weird balance of back then you couldn't be that vulgar in what you said, but you could be more vulgar in your actions. So now we're like shifting around, I
5: guess, or it's
0: just all worse. I don't know.
5: Well, here's the thing. I mean, it speaks to the, the thing I was saying earlier, like racism and sexism are cracks. Those are cracks that are built in the system. And this man exploited those cracks and he opened them up further and he got all this support. Based on those cracks, you know that's what I mean by these are these are problems that have been there for generations, and different people have tried to discuss them, solve them, slow them down, speed them up in a variety of different ways. And he is using old school divide and conquer scare tactics, and he's, you know, he's he's uh, empowering a very scary right wing of men men's rights activists and of of, I can't believe I'm saying this, but the Ku Klux Klan and white supremacists, like those are the cracks he's exploiting. And so these are the things that, you know, in addition to making sure we can start talking about things like terrorism in a larger context now, because now we have, you know, noticeably many homegrown terrorists. But also we can think about, like, what led to these conditions and how do we actually solve them. And I really do believe that, like, you know, maybe it's not 100 percent we're all in. But I see, like, young people, I meet them at colleges and I, I see the things they write about often on Tumblr, and I think to myself, these kids are great and they're they're educated in a way that we weren't. So I try to be hopeful in that way.
0: Yeah, because I did want to ask you with especially the set of people you've been talking to on your show, but also being on the road, like what kinds of either activism or ongoing trends are the most exciting to you? Like what what's out there that's changing the fastest, what's doing the most? Like, you recently did an episode about Rashad Robinson from Color of Change. Right. Their, their organization helped remove Bill O'Reilly from the airwaves. And that's that seemed like something that would have probably been impossible even, I don't know, weeks before that? Like, I don't know, is is even just that basic boycott approach something that you can see really growing? Or, or what else jumps out to you?
5: I mean, that doesn't happen overnight. I mean, but what what Rashad was able to do was, from years of pressure and social trends changing, and, you know, you have these people that are very much on the right, who are the way they are, and they've been radicalized, but you also have a lot of people who are conservative, but are young people who, at the bare minimum, find somebody like O'Reilly distasteful. Not to say they don't agree with a large... Chunks of what he's saying, but the way he does things, they find distasteful. You know, the the thinking is almost, how can I be a racist, sexist asshole at a dinner party and still be invited (laughs) to the dinner party? That's what it feels like sometimes. So I I feel like that comes from years of education and years of you know, racism mutates. So it's not to say it's gone, but at least that version of the mutation isn't going to work anymore. is, Is is what I what I get. So, I mean, I find that refreshing. I find, you know, Black Lives Matter refreshing because they were able to, this so-called hashtag activism, well, they made a hashtag and it became part of a movement. So, you know, I think people see hashtag activism and they roll their eyes, but there are examples of how it actually can be turned into action. And, you know, Occupy Wall Street, for all the stuff people said, like, oh, it didn't, what did it achieve? You know, activists, you know, don't go to a business school the way that, like, you know, business people, that do. they don't have a, a grad school education, occupied to a lot of people was that grad school. It was like building all these bonds with other activists for the first time and saying, we're going to do something. The same way for some people, the Obama election got them interested in, in changing the world positively. You know, I think it's kind of the same thing. So that comes from the grassroots. So all these things are, are things that at, at the time didn't seem like they had giant impact. But all kind of helped shape a generation that is able to when people are being detained in airports, people go immediately to the airport without being told to go. Yeah. You know, that was an instantaneous movement that was built over lots of time for people to just say, I am compelled to go to the airport, oh my god, there's thousands of people here who felt the same way I did. I mean, that doesn't happen overnight.
4: Yeah,
0: that's also, especially when those airport marches were happening, our executive editor, Jason Pargin, who writes for the site as David Wong, was talking about how one thing he noticed was that all the marching and all the people in the streets and all the big demonstrations were against racism and against hate and against people being mm-hmm. cruel to each other. Like you didn't see, there would be maybe a couple Klansmen in some main street somewhere doing something, but other, but the right. the giant people choking downtown Los Angeles, Chicago, New York, and other random cities from there were on, I guess I call it the side of good. Do I just straight up do that? I'll just yeah, do that. Yeah, go for it. Yeah, why not?
6: Yeah, I, I stack yeah. them up against the Klan,
0: so I think I have
4: to.
6: Bold take. Racism <laughs> is wrong. <laughs> I mean, it's become sadly bold.
5: We had a whole discussion about whether it's okay to punch a Nazi, which I thought Captain America resolved. <laughs> so
0: that was strange. Going back to a little bit talking about what gets called just a hashtag or just activism or something. There was one thing we covered on the site where there was that ice bucket challenge meme a few years ago and people were like, Oh, it's just celebrities dumping ice on their head, whatever, who cares about that. But a few years later, scientists specifically bankrolled by funding from that said, Hey, we identified another gene associated with ALS and thank you silly ice bucket challenge for this concrete advance of science. I think, that stuff crops up a lot more often than we expect it to.
5: I think in that example, it was the money aspect. You know what I mean? Because honestly, I forgot what it was for until you mentioned ALS. Right. But (laughs) money was was gained from it. So it kind of depends on your objective. Is it a way to make money to support something? At which point it was very effective. But when you're talking about awareness, like... I don't remember what it was about. I just remember celebrities dumping water on themselves, and I found that very satisfying.
6: <laughs> <laughs> I've always been interested in and a little bit alarmed by sometimes the commodification of activism, like the infamous Pepsi commercial, and also that there's that fierce little girl, the one who's like standing up to the bowl statue, which was uh, I don't yeah, remember. I think it's called Fearless Girl. Fearless like Girl, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was installed by, what What company was it? I don't really remember. It was, but it was not, it was not a grassroots thing. It was a marketing stunt.
0: Yeah, and reading about that, I, I was surprised to learn that apparently the bull statue was made by an artist, and then the Fearless Girl statue was made by some kind of ad campaign.
6: Yeah. Yeah.
5: Oh, I didn't know that. That's hard. That. Hard breaks my heart a little please bit. Please
0: don't hang mind. up. Please don't <laughs> hang up. Please please stand alive.
6: <laughs> but in a way, like I feel it's it's odd because it feels like it's been almost taken out of their hands. Like a lot of little girls see that as a symbol of female empowerment. And I can't really say that's wrong. I, I feel deeply uncomfortable about the corporate aspect, especially because when I first saw it, I'm like, it's like standing up to Wall Street, but I guess not. But you know, it's, I don't know. I don't know if it's a good thing. Like, what are your thoughts on that? Because I'm sort of lost.
5: I mean, it's capitalism. That's how capitalism works. I mean, with communism, people often said, well, everything was dictated by the state, and it was done for the state's agenda. Well, capitalism, it's a little less consolidated, right? It's done for the advantage of companies and many different capitalists. It's not just the state controlling the message. So as a result, anything can be co-opted. Anything can be a way to sell something or to improve your, rep- your reputation to sell something. Even when companies do any kind of public good, it's not just done out of a sense of, like, this is you know, our values. It's done because it's, like, we want that base. You know, that's really cynical on my end, I realize that, but it's hard not to be. Kendall Jenner, you know what I mean? (laughs) Like, that whole thing was just kind of, how out of touch are you? I mean, what the ad executives and the company saw were activism is in, Kendall Jenner is in, so why not just put them together? Because they're both (laughs) things that are trending. I mean, that's how capitalism views this stuff. It's sick, And, and that is... That's a cultural thing. I mean, that's a, you know, our culture has bought into stuff like that. If that advertisement was done better, you know, and it was done in a way that actually was a little bit more realistic, it probably would have moved us. But that actually, in some ways, is more dangerous, isn't it? It's, it's capitalism still being used to, like, promote something by taking advantage of certain bigger issues. You know, it, it was a different time, but, like, Martin Luther King in a Coke commercial would have been horrifying. Uh. I mean, I I have this poster in my room of Malcolm X on a Canadian game show, and it really happened. I don't know. It's a game show in Canada where there's four people, and they have to guess who the newsmaker is, and he's sitting right behind them, and they don't know who it is, and they have to ask questions to figure it out. And I have a still of it, and it's of these four white people looking concerned and inquisitive <laughs> with Malcolm X standing behind them smiling oh, wow. it is lovely is.
0: and he's not like and he,
5: that disturbs me though. he's not like behind
0: a screen or anything right they could just turn around and look at him no, and be he's like he's
5: physically behind oh, yes man. it is very uh,
6: weird oh we're looking and it's at like,
5: it that?
0: yeah our producer Brett just pulled it up and uh yeah that's just him
6: behind oh. them
5: <laughs> How do you book
6: Malcolm X? Some intern. Have an agent?
5: How do you get in touch with Malcolm especially as a Canadian broadcaster? Well at least, I mean, that's different. But even that combining of, like, entertainment and social movements, which sometimes can go terribly awry. I wouldn't use this as an example of terribly awry. I find this fascinating and as a one-off. You know, it's not like it's not like he was at a Dean Martin roast, you know, which would be very disturbing. <laughs> um, but but it's still kind of this weird intersection, and it's become really normal now.
0: I think I would like to see him on the roast, and just all he says is, "This is very disturbing," and leaves. Like, that's it.
6: <laughs> well, now you now we have the technology to like digitally create people, like
4: oh yeah, you know,
6: and so that's when you said the thing about Martin Luther King being in a Coke commercial that sent chills down my spine because like it might happen <laughs> it might happen
0: right because i think i almost i don't want to say which brand because i don't want to shame them but there was some whiskey that had bruce lee in their commercial digitally they just oh. created a bruce lee oh, and I had no. him walk around and talk about how the kind of the whiskey spoke to his journey in life
6: oh, and geez. i,
0: I I'm glad no one was into it, because otherwise that would be all we had. Uh, The people behind that, if it worked once, they'd just be like, well, we should do it a hundred more times until it doesn't work. Like, we just have everyone (laughs) and every ad.
5: I mean, you know that they don't really care, right? Like, these companies don't really care, because when you're watching television... Okay, so I I had a Comedy Central half-hour special in 2011, and I had this joke called My List of People Who Will Die in the Revolution, (laughs) where I basically... I did this on television on comedy and they aired it. And, I, you know, Jimmy Buffett was on the list. It was just a terrible, I you know, I thought it was funny, but I didn't think they'd let me get away with it. And they were fine with it. <laughs> but the joke I couldn't make was insulting McDonald's. So capitalism doesn't really care. It really has to do with you can do anything. You can be as violent and vulgar and mean-spirited, generally speaking. But the second you name a brand that's when the lawyers come in
0: yeah i almost feel like that proves mcdonald's won't survive the revolution is that right. <laughs> you're
3: afraid of being spoken no, another of another
5: joke JetBlue made the list of people that would survive because they had no first class everyone had the same amount of space and that kind of fulfilled a egalitarian mission they switched to first class too and changed the legroom structure so they're
4: out. <laughs> oh yeah, forget them.
6: <laughs> they're going to get eaten. <laughs> <laughs> I
0: did um I did want to ask you about stand up because you're you've been touring for years before and after the election and I was curious if well I mean the first question I suppose is where have you been doing shows lately but the the killer follow up is does the road feel different in any way or is it are you finding yourself sort of modulating your act at all to being more or less political or do you, I, I don't know if there's any substantial difference you're noticing but i'm curious if there is one
5: i mean i think people are trump fatigued but by him by talking about him and and also it's still somewhat divisive because even though there's a lot of trump voters who no longer feel that they made the right choice there's still a ton who do which i find Shocking that, oh, you see, you think this sinking ship's going to turn into a submarine, magically.
0: Um, <laughs> that James Bond car, you know, you just like, drive it in. It's great.
5: <laughs> but, but I feel like, there's, you know, there's a lot of people who just, they don't want to hear about it. they Don't want to think about it. You know, for the most part, I think partly because my fan base is getting a little bigger. Like, I have enough people at the shows where the shows survive. You know what I mean? Like, they're, they either they do really well or they're able, I'm able to get through them. And, and then naturally, like I've just been evolving as a human, so I, I've been sharing more personal stories just in general. And I think, you know, that also happens to help the hour because I think the more invested people are in you, the more willing they are to listen to what you have to say. Because they actually, like, know you in a, in a way. They actually connect with you. You have parents, you have family, you have problems they have. And then when you talk about this broad range of stuff, which for a lot of folks is, like, uncomfortable, at least I, I've I'm like, you know, I'm like, oh, it's like my kid's best friend. Like, that's what you want them to feel. Uh, This is like my neighbor. Like, you want those feelings so they're willing to to get in. So, I mean, you know, that's helped a lot, I think, in, in a lot of places. I mean, you know, I'm still often playing cities that would, you know, what I call coastal cities that would be conducive for what I do. But I think, you know, that I'm going to be playing Phoenix and Salt Lake City and a bunch of places that, you know, have strong countercultures that are still generally conservative, and I'm going to find out, you know. And, and I don't plan on changing w- what I do or my point of view, but I'd certainly, you know, in addition for to this being art, this is also my job, my job is to make people laugh. So, you know, I might alter a little bit, but not my point of view.
0: Well, speaking of experimenting, you just put out a few weeks ago a surprise album on Bandcamp. and it's called New Mm -hmm. Material Night is that right? Harry
5: Kundabola's New Material Night Volume 1
0: yeah how often have you done like is New Material Night an event or is it did you do it just that one time and say this is it I'm going to put it out there see what happens
5: I've done it for years since about maybe 2012 and I I really have only done it outside of Seattle once. this was the one that's recorded in that was in San Francisco. But every other one of these shows has happened at a theater called the Eclectic Theater in Seattle. And what it basically is, I go into the first show, I try, I book four shows. I go into the first show with no material, just bullet points and ideas, maybe a few jokes I want to tweak. And then the first show is brutal, <laughs> because I don't know what I'm doing. And I'm talking through it. It's a, it's a one hour open mic with just one person, really like working out stuff. And by the end of the week, you have some semblance of form. You have some semblance of Structure, some clear jokes, things have been cut, things have been reorganized. And I've been doing these for years, and so, like, my last album was mostly built out of Seattle. My last proper album, being a mainstream American comic. And I started going through tapes, and there's this one recording that's in San Francisco that you know might have been the best, or if not one of the best, one of these shows I've ever done. That was just a fun, loose. It was after my first album was released, which was waiting for 2042. I'd released waiting for 2042. Totally biased. The TV show I was writing for got canceled, so I was, tr- I was starting to like build new material and really start to get into the you know what's my next hour gonna look like. So I started doing those shows. and I decided to do one in San Francisco and uh the recording sounded pretty good on my iphone it was a small space it, it's not a professional recording but i think it's fair i mean this sounds like a comedian recording their set it's very natural it's very honest the set isn't always great sometimes i'm trying to desperately look for a joke somewhere or i <laughs> comment on my failure i mean it's it's but it's funny and it's, and it's like i'm very comfortable up there and it's loose in a way that you know, I think with my hours, the second one was definitely more comfortable, but you know, there's a, this idea of I want to showcase the work. So I want to showcase the work, so I want to make sure I don't miss stuff. But with this, there's no showcasing anything. I'm trying to figure stuff out, and it wasn't meant to be recorded, so it's honest. And so I wanted to put that out and I left it at volume 1 because you know maybe there's never a volume 2 maybe it's a history of the world part 1 type deal where that it ne- there is never supposed to be a sequel but who knows you know I want to keep it open in case I do that again cuz these are all jokes I don't really use that I've never really developed and really only fit that moment. So somebody said that uh, I basically released my own bootleg. <laughs>
0: <laughs> like Dylan. That's awesome.
5: <laughs>
0: yeah, well, in listening to it, it is really cool to, because occasionally in LA I've gotten to hear people, like I saw a show where Paul F. Tompkins had a binder on a music stand and was just working through printouts of some rough stuff and seeing how it goes and openly and it has that vibe of like I think if I can quote a part of it there's one part where you're doing this really interesting joke and then at the end of it it's fuck that joke that joke's done it's just terrible which is it's <laughs> thrilling it's amazing because <laughs> you you really are just working it out in some of the spots and it's it's a unique thing I think it's really cool
5: Thanks, man. Yeah, no, it was fun and that audience was game for it. If the audience isn't game for it, it's miserable night all around.
6: (laughs) It is interesting how it kind of demonstrates how interactive comedy is. Like, Of course, you're coming in with your own personality and opinion, but you're kind of like you're looking to the audience for guidance, and it's such an immediately interactive art form. I just made it sound like the least fun thing in the world. uh,
5: You know, it's funny. Like I I like how you called it an art form because I don't think it gets considered that enough, and I remember Kamau, he, he did a lot of solo shows. He had a show called The W. Kamau Bell Curve, and he was doing it as a solo show around the country. And this was was before Kamau had gotten, like, a little more uh, famous. But I remember he did it at the New York Fringe Festival, and it did really well. And there was a meeting afterwards with different theater types. It was, like, some kind of forum or a get-together. And he invited me to go, and people were commenting on how avant-garde his performance was because he was able to break the fourth wall and interact. And I'm thinking, like, that's just (laughs) stand-up. That's avant-garde. That is stand-up.
0: Right, crowd work. (laughs)
5: Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Which is a skill and is an art form because Danip is seen as not an art or a low form of art because I guess it's accessible and is not restricted by class barriers. People don't see it as art, but it is. These are skills that are kind of like amazing once you develop them.
4: Yeah.
0: Well, and I, we can, we can even go a little more heady. I think like how in hearing you do this new material and that it was like, cause I, I do stand up and I was like, Oh, having that kind of stage time would be amazing like having that kind of workouts but it would be very healthy for me for other people doing it for like the art of doing it and and i'm curious in general what you think and anybody thinks about like where stand-up is as an art because i see people doing really audio visual or experimental or format breaking kind of shows and then i don't know if that's a sign that it's growing or if it's uh, people are looking for something different within it. I'm getting very, very heady and arty <laughs> and maybe just ignore the question. But
5: no, no, um, no, no. I'm curious
0: about where you think the state of it is.
5: I mean, I think people are more open to experimenting than ever before because they've grown up seeing experimentation. Like before, you saw stand-ups on late-night TV, they did five minutes, and that was all stand-up was. Or maybe you'd hear a record or a special, and now you're growing up with all this, with Mr. Show, you're growing up with like all these different comics who who play with structure. Reggie Watts doesn't always use words. Right, it, it's so open. I mean, for me, the comic that opened my eyes was Stuart Lee, who's my favorite comic. He's a British comic who is, you know, who I probably mention in every interview, and I think he knows it at this point. <laughs> hey, Stuart, but he like he's able to play with the form, and he, he does. You know, he clearly shows you there are no rules here. Like that's what makes stand up so free. You can play with the structure. You can play with the uh, preconceived rules of the game. Like, that's what makes it so incredible. So, you know, I feel like there's a lot of people who are able to do that now because they have more influences, because they see a broader reach of stuff. But that's not to say there's anything wrong with the joke writer. You know what I mean? Like, there's nothing wrong with people, like, Mike Kaplan is a joke machine. There's like 48 jokes in every joke. Like, there's nothing wrong with that, you know? Uh, Hannibal, like, you know, he's done Edinburgh shows, and Edinburgh, you know, that's where the UK comics, like, showcase their hour. They write write an hour, and they do it just for the festival, and if it doesn't take off, they drop it and go to the next hour, which we all think is absurd in America. You know, why would you throw material out after a year? And, you know, Hannibal goes there with an hour without a theme. A lot of those shows have themes. Like, there's some kind of theme that makes it a show. Hannibal goes there with his amazing jokes, and he blows everybody away. Because I think that if you are a good writer, if you write great stuff, it doesn't really matter how you decide to display it. Like, I feel like you'll find the the funny in it. If the audience trusts you, they will go with you.
0: Yeah. This is a, this is a better story if I remembered who, but I heard an interview with a comedian who was saying that Everybody doing comedy, within that, there's a lot of different sports people are playing. It was sort of their figure of speech for, yeah, some people are hammering out all these billion jokes within a set like Mike Kaplan, and other people are post-verbal, and there's all kinds of ways to play the game of uh, making people
4: laugh.
5: Well, that's why, you know, I feel I, I think it's a little less so now, but I feel bad when there's this kind of stupid rivalry between the idea of alternative comics and, you know, they don't really do comedy and they don't, they're anti-joke and all this stuff. And, you know, it's it's a little absurd. Like, I get it to some degree, but, you know, I've played like all the rooms. Do you know what I mean? Like, I've played clubs, I've played rough road rooms, I've played alt rooms. You know, they're, they're all different types of audiences and they're different ways of Maybe thinking. But at the end of the day, like, you know, Richard Pryor is still, I think, the greatest of all comics because he did everything. He did everything. Yeah, he was a great joke writer. He was, he was great with characters. He was a great storyteller. He talked about day-to-day observations as well as politics and sex and all these huge issues. And if you watch his, like, TV show, I mean, it's nuts. Like, that's not something you would ever see on mainstream television now. Like, for all the talk of what's alternative or what's, like, oh, this looks like an adult swim show. I don't know, man. Some of that prior stuff could have been anywhere. Like, it, it you know, he is, if you want to break people down, I guess he's an alt comic, too. Like, he's he kind of fits everything. And also, Ernie Kovacs, if you've ever seen Ernie Kovacs yeah, stuff. Yeah. Like, oh, he's, I mean, it's bonkers, man. It, it's, like, very surreal bizarre characters non sequiturs no no real like it's not linear often the sketches don't always make sense and this was on I think NBC like it was a a show that was on broadcast television prime time this is in the early days of television when you didn't have that many things right in what the 50s 60s something like that I think it was the 50s, 60s. Yeah, I think it was the 50s. And I remember I sent Eric Andre a bunch of the stuff, because I thought he'd heard of Ernie Kovacs, just because like, I see Eric's stuff and I'm like, oh, this guy must have seen some of this. And he had never had, and it blew his mind. Because, you know, Eric Andre kind of is a continuation, a lot of ways, of that tradition. You know, of, of like, people being bonkers and, <laughs> and making stuff that, like, fits no real structure. And, you know, he was kind of like, holy crap, this existed? Yeah.
0: Well, Harry, thank you for being on the show. Uh, is there anything you want to plug real quick before we uh, head out?
5: Sure, man. I have a documentary about Apu from The Simpsons that I made with True TV that hopefully will be out later this year. That's really fun. Uh, And also I'll be touring the country. I'll be in like Denver in July, and i'll be in philadelphia and baltimore and burlington vermont Florida. there's a lot of cities i'll be <laughs> in uh, uh, phoenix so uh if people went to my website dot or more realistically if they googled hurry and comedian h-a-r-i google will say did you mean and that that would be me probably. <laughs>
0: <laughs> perfect well yeah well uh, thank you so much for coming on the show
5: absolutely man thanks for having me Folks, that's the
0: episode for this week. My thanks to the cast of thousands who appeared on this week's episode. Uh, Most recently, that was me with Katie Golden and also Hurry Kondabalu. Fun fact about that trio, Katie is a graduate of Harvard University. Hurry has a master's degree in human rights studies from the London School of Economics. And I have a book reading certificate from a minor league baseball team mascot. And of course, we'd also like to thank W. Kamau Bell, Daniel O'Brien, and... Jack O'Brien from that first interview, and Jack's name brings us quite naturally on to footnotes. We're going to link off to Politically Reactive, which is Kamau and Hurry's podcast, also both of their websites, Hurry's new stand-up album, New Material Night, Volume 1. We're going to link to Kamau's CNN show, United Shades of America, and Kamau's book, The Awkward Thoughts of W. Kamau Bell, that came out in May. And last of all, we have a link to history. It's a link to that Canadian game show that we were talking about with Hurry, where Malcolm X is the celebrity guest. It's crazy fascinating not only to see Malcolm X in a Canadian TV hangout, but also to see people of the past who were both game show contestants and Canadians. They are the most polite human beings I have ever seen in my life. That's on YouTube. It's a great find by our engineer Brett. And you're gonna love it. Check it out. You'll also see a text note in those footnotes mentioning a new mini series that's gonna live in this feed. It's a three-episode show hosted by Soren Bui coming out the next three Fridays, talking about how hair and costuming and fashion in movies and TV are the biggest spoiler of all. So yeah, you can find all of that in the episode's description. And if I may, here's what else you will find in our hearts. Uh, We're grateful for your ears. We strive to make every single listener feel like their time has been well spent listening to this show. And our whole team at Cracked is excited to keep making this podcast our audio home. So thank you for hanging out with us. And also, I'm excited to say that we have got a lot of podcasting excitement lined up for you folks in the near future and the far future. Nearest thing, we're fresh off of a very, very fun live show we did at UCB in L.A. this past weekend. You'll get to hear that very soon on our feed. We're also keeping those live L.A. shows going every second Saturday of the month. And we're taking this show on the road. We're doing a live episode in New York City at the Now Hear This Festival in September, along with How Did This Get Made, Love It or Leave It, and a bunch of other great podcasts. And if you're saying to yourself, hey, what about my city? Tell us you want to see us in your city. Reach out to us on social media and say, hey, my town deserves a live Cracked podcast. I can promise nothing, partly because I'm just not trustworthy, but we'd love to come see you and hopefully we can make that happen. Another near term thing we are doing, and I mean near, the amount of podcasting that we do here at Cracked is about to gosh darn explode. Uh, you may already know about a show called Kurt Vonnegut's, which I do with Michael Swaim, but there is going to be so much more Cracked Podcasting beyond this show and that show. We can't give you a lot of details quite yet, but we can give you those shows in the next few months. So stay subscribed to this feed because all the information will be there and the premieres will be there. And it's going to be something that I think you guys will be really excited to add to your auditory entertainment. And then in the far term, some of you might recognize me from past appearances on this show or in Cracked's videos. Others may not. Either way, I think you and I can figure out exactly what this will be and what this will continue to become, and I hope you find that idea exciting. I know I do. And if you hate that idea, let me know on social media. That's what it's for. I'm at Alex Schmidt on Twitter, and I'm also AlexSchmitty.com on the wider internet. And then you can find our super engineer, Brett Rader, at Brett, R-A-D-E-R, on Twitter. And we'll be back next week with more podcasts. How about that? Talk to you then. Thanks for listening guys. Today's episode was sponsored by TJ Miller's new comedy special Meticulously Ridiculous on HBO. That's right, comedian, actor, voiceover artist, star of Silicon Valley, TJ Miller is starring in his first HBO stand-up comedy special filmed in his hometown of Denver, Colorado, highlighting his high-energy, unorthodox comedic observations on life, death, and everything in between. It's TJ Miller. You know him. He's funny. It'll be great. It features a water-drenched T.J. Miller, along with plenty of audience interaction, and the special offers his offbeat take on topics such as nightmares, the difference between marijuana and alcohol, his favorite historical figure, and the challenges of talking about death. So death, joy, water, comedy, it's all there on T.J. Miller's new special. This special premieres Saturday, June 17th at 10 p.m. on
1: HBO. Hello out there. My name's Chris Gethard. You might know me. I'm the host of Beautiful Anonymous... Now look, you probably wouldn't think that deaf people listen to podcasts, but recently on my show, I had a pretty unusual phone call.
5: So this voice that you're hearing right now is actually not who you're going to be speaking to today. The person that wants to speak to you happens to be deaf.
0: Things took a lot of turns.
5: Deaf people don't eavesdrop. That is such a fucking hearing person thing. And I think it's weird that you guys eavesdrop on each other all the time. Ah. And the fact Ah. that you guys like hear each other pee and poop is weird too. People listen in on that? Why?
1: That's disgusting. I guess you know, you always look for the silver linings. Like you've never been in a public restroom and had to deal with someone just having a horrific diarrhea blowout next to you. You don't have to hear that. We've also got lots more great stuff at Beautiful Anonymous, where I take phone calls from people like you, also people sometimes very different from you, all walks of life. Subscribe right now in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen.